You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dunnett. That's right. You're tuned in to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. And for many of you, as you hear the sound of our voices, it is 2013. I'm Chad Dundas from ESPN.com, joining us as always from USA Today and MMAJunkie.com. It's my friend and yours, Ben Folks. Ben, it's 2013. It's not, though. How are you? It's not. It's 2012 while we're recording this. As we sit here today, it is New Year's Eve New day. Year's Eve, bitch! New Year's Eve day, Yeah, bitch. Are you drunk yet? I'm a little tipsy. Yeah. I had a couple few pops on the way over. Yeah, I figure you probably stopped down at the Silver Tip your way over here, sit around, talk about farm futures, and throw a couple rye whiskeys back. You know, last night I, I actually was in a convenience store with my brother who lives in Portland, but obviously he was here visiting over the Christmas holiday, and he pointed out something to me that I think is like not that uncommon about Montana convenience stores, but it was something that I had never really noticed before, and that is that there is oftentimes a cooler full of ice and single beers just sort of sitting by the counter at the convenience store where, hey, if you want to, you can reach in there and buy yourself one tall boy of Bud Light. Yeah, because sometimes you just want one tall boy of Bud Light. Yeah, because there's no possible drinking and driving implications <laughs> of just having single beers up by the counter. Well, you know, and then if you go down uh, to Victor, to, to Cowboy Troy's, they'll mix you up a Go Cup. Oh, yeah. Send you Big on your time. way. Yeah, there's a lot of places that'll do that for you. Yeah. Anyway, you're listening to the first co-main event podcast of the new year. Uh, somehow we managed to pick a year where I feel like almost all major holidays fell on the day we were supposed to record. We charged right through that shit, though. Pretty much, yeah. yeah. Uh, as usual, this, uh, this episode comes in three rounds. In round number one, Cain Velasquez is the baddest man on the planet, at least for the next few months. In round number two... Once again, a couple of lightweights totally, unbelievably, completely blow our fucking minds. In round number three this week, Dana White spoke out at length about PEDs just prior to UFC 155, and some of the stuff he said was pretty weird. Mm -hmm. So we're going to talk about that. First, though, before we go any further, we just want to remind everyone out there that you have one more week to get your commentary into us for the first ever co-main event book club. And I know a lot of you are pretty excited about that. I've been hearing about it on Twitter. A lot of people out there are, are going to be mixing up a siren, uh, grabbing a, a fresh clip of uh, soldiers and, and sitting down for this one. And I know some of you have even tweeted me some of your thoughts, uh, your literary analysis of Bar Brawler. And I got to say, some legit points have been made already yeah and let me say the comments that we have gotten emailed to us so far are all really good yeah so don't miss out i mean god for god's sakes if you took the time to read goddamn bar brawler <laughs> send us your comments so you didn't just do it for nothing yeah because goddamn, that would just be sad uh what are we doing here okay yeah all that plus are you fucking kidding me and just saying stuff but first like we always do about this time a little bit of listener mail listener mail First question this week comes from David Neighbor. He asks, does Dana White realize it'll be more difficult to get fighters to accept short notice bouts if he insults them for getting tired at the post-fight presser? Derek Brunson made weight and beat Chris Lieben handily on eight days notice, and all Dana could talk about was him watching the clock. What incentive does a fighter have to quote-unquote step up? You know, this is a good point, uh, but also there's two sides to this. It's true that if you are going to ask these guys to step up on, and take a fight on less than two weeks' notice, and especially since you spend most of fight week you know, going to Vegas and sitting around and, and you know, you're not really pushing your cardio hard in the ballroom workout room of the MGM Grand, yeah, you know, don't be surprised if some of those guys don't look all that great on short notice. Uh, the flip side, though, is that when you know you got guys like Derek Brunson who will do just about anything to get in the UFC, and there's always going to be some of those guys – then maybe you don't have to worry about criticizing them for, for looking shitty. I mean, if you do that to guys who are established, who have the luxury of saying no to a short notice fight, yeah, maybe that's what, it's going to make them think twice. Do I really want to go out there if I know my cardio is not 100% there because Dana White will put you on blast in the post-fight press conference? But for a lot of those guys, they really have no, no better option. I mean, Derek Brunson might have looked kind of shitty, got a little tired there, but he got his foot in the door. 
Yeah, I, I feel like this year, though, we've had a couple of high-profile instances where the old theory that taking a short-notice fight was going to earn you some of some kind of political capital with the UFC, I feel like we've had a couple of high-profile instances this year where it seemed like that didn't quite work out. We have. You know, for, for various reasons, although Derek Brunson certainly, you know, as David Neighbor said, did it, in fact, quote-unquote, step up. He made weight, and then he, he won the fight, which— uh, He did. You know, pretty impressive, I guess, just on on eight days notice. Yeah, I mean, if that's what's Chris Lieben's excuse, you know, <laughs> when has Chris Lieben ever needed an excuse before? Yeah, that's true. But I, I mean, I do think though it's kind of the same thing where uh, when the UFC made that fight between was it Chad Mendez and Cody McKenzie, I believe, and Mendez just went out there and wrecked Cody McKenzie as we kind of all thought he would, and then afterwards, like the tone that, that Dana White adopted at, at the press conference was kind of mocking. Of like, oh, can you believe what a mismatch? It's like, you guys made this fight. Yeah. Anyway, the second question this week comes to us from Eric Albrecht, who asks, if you could make any mixed martial arts related person have a New Year's resolution, who would it be and what would their resolution consist of? I like this. I like this is a good question. I, I like this. Too. I really like the idea of forcing someone to have a New Year's resolution. <laughs> <laughs> That's really fun An to me. Intervention style New yeah. Year's resolution. Uh, here's, here's one that, and this is just a minor point, uh, a New Year's resolution for UFC lightweight champion Benson Henderson. I know you think I'm going toothpick here, but I'm not. I think it's just weird enough he can keep doing the toothpick thing. Uh, make a point to never again utter, utter the phrase, it is what it is. Not in an interview, not in, in you know, video, uh, pre-fight video comments, nothing. Stop saying that phrase. Use it all the time, and it's one of those ridiculous cliche phrases athletes rely on. Of course, it is what it is. How could it be what it isn't? Stop it. <laughs> uh, let's see here. My, I think my New Year's resolution is going to be uh, maybe a couple of jujitsu classes for the UFC heavyweight champion. Oh, here we go. Not, a, I mean, hey, not a ton. Just a couple, just one or two. Enough to get in there and learn a, a scarf choke. Is that a you, thing? A okay. scarf choke? Is First that real? of all, I, I think I should tell everyone uh, listening to the podcast right now, if only you could have been at my house watching UFC 155, you would have seen Chad Dundas losing his goddamn mind over Cain Velasquez's refusal to go for a rear naked choke when he had Junior Dos Santos hurt. I think we'll talk about it. I think we'll get there in round number one. But just like, just just learn a strangle bar, you know. <laughs> so if, wait, you want him to have some catch wrestling if, lessons? Well, now? I mean, if for no other reason than to save Junior Dos Santos the trouble. I mean, good God, <laughs> just just slap a choke on and let the guy tap out with some dignity. Yeah, that's true. Uh, another New Year's resolution, a little more serious one that I would suggest for Alistair Overeem. Uh, get with one of those voluntary drug testing 24-7 round-the-clock deals, whether it's VADA, whether it's USADA. Plop down the money and do that because otherwise you are never, ever going to convince anybody that you are not cheating your ass off with performance-enhancing substances. People are always going to think of you that way. You already look like that and you failed a drug test. Uh, it's n even if you become the champion, it's going to be tainted unless you go out of your way to prove that you are not using. Yeah, that's a good one, actually. And also, I think we've got a better chance of seeing the Mayans be off by a year and <laughs> witness the end of the world during 2013 rather than to see that happen. What do you think about the Benson Henderson one? Do you think we can see that one? Yeah, no, I thought that was a, that okay. was a good one. All right, good. This is something he could take to heart. Because that's um, the one that's really important to me. My, my final New Year's resolution is for UFC co-owner Lorenzo Fertitta. And that's, you know, I don't know, maybe work out a little more yeah. during 2013. Yeah, he's, he's wasting away. Yeah, of course I'm joking because it looks like Lorenzo Fertitta does nothing but lift weights, which I think is awesome. If I was a billionaire, oh, I'd be yoked. I'd be, I just lift weights all the fucking time. Yeah. I'd also be gassed out of my mind on every performance enhancer I could get my hands on. <laughs> no, I hear he does his uh, best thinking on the bench press. Yeah. I mean, why not, really? I mm -hmm. mean, you own a fleet of casinos, which is, as far as billionaires go, probably not the most high learning curve in terms of like, oh, man, how are we going to keep this thing going? You know, how are we going to keep the wheels yeah. on this? It's thing not a tech during, startup. During, yeah. the two th during the recession, it's sort of like, if you own a casino, it's sort of like, well, are we open today? Like, did someone remember to go down and unlock the doors? Are there still such things as degenerate gamblers? Are people still addicted to the thing that I sell them, which is destroying their lives? Okay, right. then we're fine. We'll just go ahead and move on to our next question, which come to us, comes to us from JD, 
who writes, Somewhere in the world does there exist a bigger Cain Velasquez fanboy than Chad Dundas. Chad had some sort of rebuttal prepared for each and every possible thing about JDS's initial win over Kane. He says, you almost have to take that one and throw it away. LOL, writes JD. Why? Seriously? You didn't see much because Kane got KO'd so quickly, exclamation point. What part did Kane's knee play in that outcome, question mark? I guess everything was weird, in quotes. Just too weird, exclamation point. And then the last word, thanks, period. I love this question. Uh, there's two questions here. One is attacking you personally, mm-hmm. uh, which I enjoy. Uh, and if, for those keeping a tally, now Chad's guys are Tim Boach, Stefan Struve, and Kane Velasquez, apparently. Anyone else that we should add that, that may, major Chad Dundas fanboy status? Uh, I mean, I guess my only response to this question would be, motherfucker what? <laughs> Uh, and I mean, obviously, we received this before UFC 155, and then oh, really? Okay, yeah. And then Cain Velasquez went out and proved me right on all of those points. <laughs> so I'm I'm pretty happy with it all the way around. You know, I did think as we were watching, and especially in that first round, uh, it seemed like Joe Rogan was pretty solidly in the Cain Velasquez camp. Did it not? Well, this was a weird UFC all the way around in terms of, and you know, the UFC broadcast team is guilty of this a lot, but this one I thought was a really pronounced instance where one member of the broadcast team will pick a guy that he wants to say positive things about and then will do that for the entire fight regardless of how the fight is going because they did it during the Chris Lieben Derek yeah. Brunson fight where yep. at, you know as we talked about last week you and I like Chris Lieben mm-hmm. we're, we're pretty big Chris Lieben guys all the way around and yet he was losing that fight from start to finish. Yeah, he never looked good for a minute. The whole time, the the broadcast team was just sort of like, well, Chris Lieben, uh, Derek Brunson is going to get pretty tired here. Yeah. <laughs> it was like Chris well, Lieben was waiting to pounce. Well, he was softening him up from, yeah. with those punches from the bottom, right? He was softening him up. Uh, yeah, no, it was, and that was kind of the line that Joe Rogan adopted throughout the entire thing was that, you know, Derek Brunson uh, was totally gassed whereas chris lieben was uh using had an economy of of motion yeah <laughs> you know yes. it was being really always known for his economy of motion. with his with his energy uh but yeah i think maybe it was a weird broadcast because you know it was the first time with rogan and anik together rather than rogan and goldberg yeah uh john anik did not seem to want to break in and, and interrupt joe rogan as yeah, much really as mike goldberg rogan will do a lot of the play-by-play and hey in fairness i thought anik did a really good job anik is really good i think that they'll only get better working together if they do it more I mean, you can understand how the first time together you don't really know how it's going to go and right. so it might be a, a bit of a learning process there but it did seem like he was doing that with kane velasquez too joe rogan i mean saying like you know in the first couple of minutes where you know kane is diving for these takedowns that weren't really even coming close junior dos santos is just kind of stepping out of them and we're already hearing about, wow, this, this pace is just going to wear Junior down. I don't know if it would have had he not just gotten rocked by a, a right hand. That's what did him in. That's what yeah. wore him down. Well, again, I think we'll get to that coming up here in round number one. You know what the weirdest one, though, that I remember was, was the fight. You got to go way back to uh, the finale of, I think, Ultimate Fighter Season 2 when Rashad Evans fought Brad Imes in the heavyweight final. And at the time, way back. Yeah. I mean, at the time, Rashad Evans was sort of being cast as this like underachieving heavyweight malcontent was sort of like his character coming off the second season of The Ultimate Fighter. And he beat the shit out of Brad Imes in that final in the finale. And the UFC could not have praised Brad Imes more (laughs) if they had tried during the course of him getting his ass kicked. But I remember there was one time. Rashad Evans dropped him with a punch and like followed up with punches on the ground. And Mike Goldberg's commentary about it was Brad Imes survives. <laughs> it's like, dude, that's not a compliment. That's not like he's almost lost right there. <laughs> well, before we uh, move on to the next question, I would like to say, uh, I think we saw this line of, of thinking though, a lot where um, as soon as the fight was over and it was clear that Kane Velasquez had won, then it was like, Oh yeah, that first fight, totally a fluke. Uh, you know, Kane's knee was hurt. That's the only that's the only explanation for that. Which, all right, you know, I'm sure the knee hurt that that affects his confidence. It affects what he thinks he can do and stuff. Still, Junior Dos Santos went in there, punched him in the head once, yeah. and knocked him out. So I, but I said it was a fluke before the second fight. Yeah, so I still think it's bullshit to say that it's a for fluke. Me. It's no more a fluke than you know 
when whenever it happens in MMA where you land one punch at the very beginning of the fight and the fight's over. I mean, yeah, maybe if you fight again, it's going to go differently. Uh, I don't think it means that, like, oh, this one's not even worth talking about. You knock a motherfucker out, you knocked him out. You yeah. get that. You it, get to take that home with you. It may not have been a fluke, but I certainly think it was a cautionary tale for dudes not to fight with blown out knees. Yeah, well, if you needed one, there it is. Uh, the last question this week comes from Alistair Royds, which... I see what he did there. Yeah, I get it. The question is... Not his given name, perhaps? No, I don't think that's what his mom named him. Uh, Tim Kennedy had observed that Strikeforce fighters pulling out of quote-unquote champions in order to hop straight into the UFC are... This is another quote from from Tim Kennedy. A bunch of little vaginas. Assuming he is speaking figuratively, do you agree? If so, should the event be named Strikeforce (laughs) Non-Vaginas? I think uh, Strikeforce Non-Vaginas, I would really love to see what the poster looks like. Wouldn't you? Well, it would. It, I, it would be different than the if there was a Strike Force Vaginas card. That that would be a, a an odd yeah. That's poster. a different. That's a different poster. You know the one with the big picture of Nick Diaz. That maybe something just a. Never mind. Yeah, you know, Tim Kennedy has a point that hey, it is bullshit for all these guys to just be like, oh wait, Strike Force is going away. Oh well, you know my ankle feels a little loose now that I think about it. Uh, it's I mean, bullshit, but it's also payback as a motherfucker, yeah, Strikeforce. It's bullshit, like, but if it's... If you fuck these guys over enough, when they get the chance to fuck you over, and we don't know for sure that that's what they're doing, but if they get the chance, I can't blame them. And it's totally reasonable on their part to not want to fight for Strikeforce, especially if you know that you are going to the UFC. If, it, if you're one of those guys where... If you're Gilbert Melendez, you could po- not possibly pay me enough to fight uh, Healy. Ryan Healy? Yeah, but it, Pat Healy. Pat Healy. Uh, but if you're Pat Healy, you want that fight. You know? Well, yeah, shit, of so, course you do. For those guys, the guys that don't know what their status is going to be with the UFC, yeah, I, you know, makes sense for them to fight. For the other guys, it does not really make any sense. So you can't really blame them. But it is, you know, it, here's where we get into that thing where, you know, the fighters love to walk around and puff their chest out and talk about what badasses they are and how they'll fight anybody, anywhere, anytime, except that they won't. Um, because no one will, because that's dumb. Like, you should take some care for your career. Uh, but it also it kind of gives the lie to that that hard-ass adage that they, they love to, to push, you know, that, that image of themselves. Because, yeah, sometimes it's just it's better not to fight than to fight. Well, that's it for Listener Mail this week. Remember, if you have future questions, comments, concerns, or personal attacks to send the podcast, you can do so by going to our website, comaineventpodcast.com, and clicking the link at the top of the page that says Email the Podcast. Uh, as for right now, though, we're going to go ahead and roll directly into round number one. <laughs> Ben, after starting fairly slowly, UFC 155 kind of finished with an awesome bang with the last two fights. I thought the uh, the co-main event and the main event were both pretty darn good. And I think that the the main event was sort of its own special brand of roller coaster ride in a way. Because I know at the beginning of the fight, we were we, you and I were sitting there watching it. And at one point, I turned to you and I was like, wow, this really looks like Cain Velasquez is about to get knocked out. And then... Uh, it didn't happen. Uh, he he ended up flooring JDS with a right hand and 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 kind of put the you know put the accelerator down and pretty much dominated from from the for for the rest of the way. So I guess just to open things up, what, what what's your take on this performance from Cain Velasquez? I, it, it was getting a lot of rave reviews online for people that I think thought it was a, a an exceptional an exceptional performance, but. You know, I, if we're going to nitpick, I think that there's some there's some flaws there. So, what was your takeaway? Yeah, I think it is hard to to know what to make of the last four rounds of the fight because that one right hand that he landed that changed everything. It was not looking like a, a great fight for Cain Velasquez right before that. I mean, he was landing. Uh, Junior Dos Santos seemed not at all worried about getting out of the way of Cain Velasquez's punches. He was just backing straight up uh, with you know his head in one spot. And he was getting t- tagged a little bit. But he was mainly worried about avoiding the takedowns, which he did with, without much problem. I mean, he got taken down and he'd get right back up. Or he'd just kind of step right out of those single legs, the diving single legs against the fence that Cain Velasquez would try. Uh, it seems like, you know, with one or two little fixes, the first of which being don't get hit in the face, uh, Junior Dos Santos was looking like he was on a path to be successful there. Yeah, but I, I mean, again, that's we talked about this a little bit uh, last week, but that's just sort of the, the, the heavyweight division right there. Yeah. That's that like 
that's one of the reasons that the, the heavyweight title has been so unstable over the years because all it takes is for you to get punched in the face one time and then you're pretty much on Dream Street for the next 25 minutes. Uh, for me, I always think that there's a special kind of nervousness that builds up during a fight where one guy is clearly winning, but he can't finish. And so the fight, he just kind of is letting the other guy hang around and hang around. And especially in the heavyweight division, and especially against a guy like Junior Dos Santos, where the whole time, even after it became clear that Dos Santos was a shadow of his former self for the, you know, the duration of the fight. But, you know, towards the end there where he did look a little bit fresher and he yeah. did have a little bit of spring in his step, I kept being like, oh, man, Cain Velasquez is going to get knocked out. Yeah, he did get his legs back at times. You know, he'd have a couple seconds here or there where he'd throw a punch and it looked like he actually had something behind it. I mean, I'm sure if Junior Dos Santos was Roy Nelson right now, he'd be talking about how he wishes he just had three more rounds. <laughs> just three more rounds. With if he rounds, you know... Six, seven, and eight, those would have been the ones where he took over and, and changed everything. But it, you're right, it did have that, after King couldn't put him away in the first round, couldn't put him away in the second, it was like, you let this guy stick around and something bad might happen. I do think it's worth talking about. I mean, it is feeling a little nitpicky to, be, to say to Kane Velasquez, yeah, you go out there and beat this, you know, one of the more dominant so far heavyweight champions that we've seen recently. Um, but hey, you couldn't finish him, so we're all going to talk shit on you. It is worrisome, though. Yeah, it's I, it's really worrisome, I, especially if I was Cain Velasquez's coach. I would tell him, man, you looked great. That was an outstanding performance. And if you do that against Alistair Overeem, you're going to get knocked the fuck out. Yes, exactly. I mean, you can't. If he fights Alistair Overeem next year, which I think is likely, because I think we all expect Overeem to tear through uh, Antonio Silva when they fight in February. Um, if, if he lets Overeem hang around as long as he let dos santos hang around i really do think he gets knocked out yeah. i mean if he gets if he gets the opportunity that he got in the first round against alistair over him he needs to finish or else things are going to go badly for him i think and we know that kane velasquez can be knocked out I mean, we saw him get knocked out by junior dos santos and we also saw remember his fight with czech congo czech congo we're talking about yeah every second he spent on the feet with czech congo had to make kane velasquez's corner heart stop because every single time he'd get punched on the chin, his legs would go wobbly. He had to get that fight to the ground immediately. He's gotten to be a better striker since then. At the same time, though, when you look at him against a guy where he's given up as much weight and, and strength as he probably will against Alistair Overeem, if he has to you know, take him down and wear him out with pressure and, and, and ground and pound for five rounds... You know, I'm not saying he can't do that, but there's a lot of risk involved in that strategy. You give him a lot of chances uh, to tee off on you. And a big guy like Overing, all it takes is for him to land one punch, land one knee in the clinch or something, and you're in big trouble. Strangle bar. Strangle, you think that scarf, strangle bar is the Scarf answer? choke. <laughs> you think this is the answer for everything, don't you? It's a clock choke. Now I'm just saying stuff. A clock choke, that's a thing. Is that a thing? Yeah. Is a scarf choke a thing? Yeah. It is, right? Yeah. I well, I mean, the thing is, when you're learning uh, Brazilian jiu-jitsu, you learn about five different names uh, for everything. Right. And the the best, though, are always the Brazilian names because they're just like the Mata most... Mata Leon. <laughs> well, they don't even bother to teach you the Portuguese oh, to most of them. They just say lion killer well, Yeah, or they'll just give you like the most literal translation of stuff that they can. It's a lot of fun. Uh, well, let's talk about this, the fact that you brought this up earlier, but essentially that one punch that Velasquez landed changed the complexion of the rest of the fight. And I think... You know, that's uh, that's sort of a, a, a telling, uh, not telling, but like a representative thing of the heavyweight division kind of. And I feel like there are a number of reasons that the heavyweight division is unique in MMA. And it has a lot to do with the guys being so much larger than everyone else and wearing those tiny gloves so that if you get tagged one time by, you know, 240 pound Kane Velasquez, uh, you know, you're probably going to be hurting for the next 30 minutes. Well, and it's like, the being a 250 pound dude allows you to deliver more force uh, when you throw a punch, but it doesn't necessarily allow you to take that much. Like it's like yeah, the, no, good point. The, yeah. the ratio starts to get skewed when you get up into the heavyweights. It's like you know, with the lightweights, they can usually take a little more than they can give, and then you get in the middle and, and light heavyweights, and it gets to be about equal. You get to the heavyweights, everybody can give more than they can take. It seems, uh, with the possible exception of Mark Hunt, uh, <laughs> who is not a human being. Is any part of that, though, in your opinion, the fact that these guys, heavyweights, don't get tagged a lot like that in practice, or that they're not used to overcoming adversity, really? Because one of the other, you know, a couple of the other things that make the heavyweight division unique is that, number one, most of these guys don't have to make weight. 
So, yeah. you know, you can you can do whatever kind of training you want or lack thereof. You can you can roll in looking like Roy Nelson. Uh, and the other part of it is, you know, they're very much used to being the biggest, strongest, baddest man in the gym, so to speak. So when they run up against this kind of adversity in the fight, they're not used to bouncing back from it. Whereas maybe a guy like Joe Lauzon or Joe, Joe Lauzon, Joe Lauzon, Joe Lauzon. Keep going. Jay Lau. <laughs> uh, you know, he, he uh, gets busted wide open and is wearing the crimson mask and yet marshals the, 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 the sense and the, and the determination to sort of come back and make a fight out of it. That's true to some extent. I, I think we see it a lot with uh, the guys who, when the UFC develops smaller weight classes, they immediately drop down to those smaller weight classes. And you're thinking, man, if you can make that so easily, how did you ever compete at this higher weight class? Well, in part because a lot of times when you're the little guy, you get used to always being the little guy. And so you're not really stressing that much about 10 pounds here or there. You know, if you're fighting guys who are all a little bit bigger than you and stronger, that's really nothing new. You know, if you're Joe Benavidez, you've been doing that your whole life. Uh, I think, though, with the heavyweights, it depends what gym you come from. Because if you look at AKA, where right now you've got Cain Velasquez, Daniel Cormier, and Todd Duffy all there, I mean, there's a lot of heavyweights banging on each other. Yeah. Uh, and Todd Duffy had talked are about you, this. Wait, are you trying to say that iron sharpens iron? In a, in a way, iron sharpens iron or, you know, rips your knee out. Uh, <laughs> one of those. Uh, but, you know, some gyms, heavyweights are really, really tough to come by. And, you know, you see like the heavyweights always trying to arrange to make sure they have enough guys to spar with. And they usually end up sparring with smaller guys, uh, at least some of the time. Uh, it's just a lot harder to find good, you know, heavyweights in MMA in general. I mean, look how long it took the UFC to get a decent heavyweight division together. Right. Uh, so that's kind of the same for the guys in the gyms. And then, you know, when you do have a, another heavyweight in the gym, you're thinking, am I going to have to fight this guy eventually? So there's some of that going back and forth. One of the things that I wanted to talk about before we move off of this topic, something that a uh, friend of the podcast, Danny Boy Downs, brought up to me on Twitter after the fight, where, you know, I think rightly pointed out that pretty much from that first round on, Junior Dos Santos had what was almost assuredly a concussion. You know, he, he rises to his feet to get back to his corner after the, the first round, and he is just wobbling all over the place. I mean, he fails a sobriety test right there, just trying to get back to his own corner. And we can see that, and yet the fight goes on for four more rounds, possibly because Cain Velasquez has not learned the Chad Dundas strangle bar yet. Uh, but, or he could have just poked him in the eye. <laughs> another sweet Chad Dundas move. Uh, fight ender. <laughs> But, you know, we see a guy who is definitely, you know, concussed, has taken a lot of damage, and the fight just goes on and on. At what, but just because he can lift up his arms and can take it and still throw some back here and there, we say, ah, oh, he's still in it. We, we let it continue. At any point when you're watching that, do you start to feel this is getting a little gross? Well, I did think it got real ugly for Junior Dos Santos there down the stretch, and I think... I, I seem to remember before the, the final round when they had Dos Santos in his corner and everyone was just kind of screaming at him. I think I was like, can't we just call this off? Like, haven't we seen enough? It's clear that he's not going to, you know, bounce back and, and pull victory. But he's not going to quit either. Defeat. No, he's not. And I'll tell you what, it didn't, you know, watching this fight for whatever reason, even though it probably should have, it didn't, this, the, the, this one didn't bother me as much as the George Soderopoulos, Ross Pearson fight did where it seemed like, Soderopoulos got concussed like three times during that fight. And this one, you know, you could argue that it, it was worse just because those are 240-pound guys punching each other in the it. face. And there's 25 minutes of it. Um, but it, it, didn't, uh, it didn't bother me at the time. After I thought about it later, I realized that that was, that that, you know, that's probably a good point, that, that we did probably witness Junior Dos Santos get concussed and then go on and fight another 20 minutes which certainly can't be good for you no at the same time though that's sort of like what you signed up for so you know that's you're never going to eliminate that completely from fighting well and if he had when he was getting bombed on there uh in the first round on the ground if he had kind of rolled up and covered up and waited for it to be over you know the way stefan bonner did against anderson silva the way uh even your guy tim boach did a little bit against costa Filippo. You know, the, that fight would have been over at that point. No one would have necessarily thought any less of him. I don't think they would have said, ah, oh, Junior Dos Santos quit. I mean, it was clear that he was rocked and he was hurt. 
so I don't think anybody would have blamed him too much for that. Uh, but that's one of those things where that same thing that Ken Shamrock said years ago still holds true, that the thing that makes the guy the champion is also the thing that m- makes him put himself through some of that unnecessary shit. And you looked at him at the end of that fight. It's hard not to think that a beating like that, I mean, that could ruin some guys. Yeah. You know, some guys will never be the same after a beating. You don't know what effect it will have on Junior Dos Santos. Hard not to think that it took some, some years off his career, though. Uh, and when he's standing there looking like a completely different person, uh, than the one he walked in the cage as, and the crowd in Vegas boos him, and he says, "Why they do that?" Yeah, no. Oh God, that was heart sad. just fucking breaks. Yeah, it breaks into a million pieces. Yeah, that was that was fairly fairly heart wrenching. Why uh, do they do that, Chad? No, why who they knows? do that? Who knows what they're thinking? It's just a bunch of drunk people that wandered in off the strip because they saw a big shiny gold belt on the poster. <laughs> You know why they do that? <laughs> um, well, let's talk briefly before we move on about the trope that the UFC always tries to establish about the heavyweight champion being the baddest man on the planet. I know Emperor you, of masculinity. You wrote about this this week on MMA Junkie, and it seems like if there's any division where that trope falls flat, it's the heavyweight division. Not because they're it's not the baddest man on the planet. He, arguably, he is. It's just that. Chances are he's going to lose to the next guy he fights. He is right now. Look quick. The baddest man on the planet right there until he fights someone else. As we were watching the fight, you made the comment, right now I feel like if Junior Dos Santos and Cain Velasquez fought 20 times, they might split them. They might each win 10, which I think is perfectly valid. Yeah, or it might be like 12-8 or something. Yeah, that's the thing we keep seeing in the heavyweights, though, that still the record for title defenses as the UFC heavyweight champion holding steady at two. Mm -hmm. Two. That's incredible. Yeah, I mean, you look around at all the other divisions, and the belts have just kind of stayed where they are for for a long time. You know, Benson Henderson became lightweight champion and has held it uh, throughout the entire year. But otherwise, you know, welterweight, middleweight, light heavyweight, you have some pretty dominant champs. At heavyweight, you just can't seem to establish that guy. Uh, I wonder. I go back and forth on whether or not that's a good thing. Yeah, I do too, honestly. And we talked about it last week, and I said that I thought that. Uh that, uh, you know, the, the, the public likes dominance, and I think it's really easy, or at least easier, to, to market a really dominant champion like Mike Tyson because people want to tune in to see how badly he's going to beat the shit out of the next guy that he fights. But at the same time, Mike Tyson had that problem where he was beating the shit out of people too quickly and nobody right. wants to buy the pay-per-view for it. I remember my dad would never buy the pay-per-views once Mike Tyson was running through people in, in 45 seconds because it's just like, what are you paying for? Yeah, well, and I think the the other thing that could lead to some marketability for the heavyweight title or for the heavyweight division in the UFC is that you do kind of never know who's going to win. So there's that sort of unpredictability factor. Um, at the same time, though, uh, I, I kind of wonder, like, and I know I feel this way, that we always make a really big deal out of the heavyweight title and, and like, the heavyweight division at large, and I understand why that is because the dudes are huge and blah, blah, blah. But, like, I feel like as a hardcore MMA fan, the heavyweight division's not really my division. You know no. what I mean? Light heavyweight, I feel like, has always been the, the MMA's version of heavyweight. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that. And, and even, you know, in addition to that, I really enjoy the lighter weights, the, those fights more, because I feel like they consistently offer a better product, Where I feel, whereas the heavyweight division, I think, uh, appeals more to the guy who wanders in off the strip, because he, yeah. he wants to see two real big bulls going yeah, at Yeah, the biggest, baddest motherfuckers you got. Anyway, speaking of the lightweight guys, that's what we'll be talking about in round number two, and that starts right now. Round two. Chad, I think it's fair to say that the UFC 155 pay-per-view absolutely fucking sucked right up until the point when Jim Miller and Joe Lozon, Lozen, Loz, Lozen, when Jim Miller and his opponent went out there and then just got the hell after it. Yeah, it was awesome. It was awesome. And it was one of those things where when those guys were coming out, I was thinking to myself and maybe even put on Twitter, like, please let these guys do something to turn this around. Because... It was not going well. There were good prelims, good good fights on, on Facebook and on FX. And then you get out there, you got Chris Lieben and Derek Brunson wheezing on each other. Uh, you got uh, Yushin Okami just Okamiing the shit out of Alan Belcher. Which is impressive in its own right. Yes, it is. Impressive, uh, but, you know, impressive the way, like, 
a master craftsman of a craft that you do not appreciate or understand is impressive. Where yeah. you're like, oh, that must be hard. I don't really want to sit around and watch it, yeah. but it's it's impressive. You have to appreciate it at the end of the fight, though, when, when Alan Belcher gets the mount and like a minute and 15 seconds later, Okami's out like it ain't no thang. Yeah. Like, yeah. that's when you know that, like, you found your sport. Like, when you watch that and you're like, oh, that was awesome how he got out of that. We got mounted, but then he got out of it and, like, didn't take any damage. That's when you know you've nerded out yeah, fully you're, you're for an this MMA sport. Nerd. Yeah, that was some, you know, jujitsu class drill bullshit. Let's let Alan Belcher start and mount, and you got to get out in 60 seconds or less, which you did. Yeah. Uh, and then you have, you know, a kind of sloppy rule-breaking affair between Costa Filippo and, and your guy, Tim Boach. Bullshit. <laughs> You know, it's really a lackluster event up until the point when the lightweights come out and just start beating the hell out of each other and Joe Lozon is bleeding all over the damn place. Yeah, I mean, I feel like if ever there was an instance when the new reality of how the UFC books pay-per-views absolutely hit a fucking home run, it was this fight. Because, you know, what you, essentially what you have are two mid-range lightweights who, no matter how many times they say it before the fight starts, probably aren't fighting for a shot at the title. No, both or, have recently lost to guys who were more contenders than they are. Yeah, and 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 it's, it's two guys where in the past this fight probably would have kicked off a pay-per-view rather right. than having been the co-main event. And yet, at the same time, it was a fight that seemed scientifically designed to be exciting and... Then they went out and totally fucking delivered, and it was awesome. And frankly, the the point when Eve Levine had to call a stop to the action to get the scissors out and cut the the the, the athletic tape off Joe Lozon's just the arm, bloody and the, these athletic two tape. guys are sitting there just covered in gore. And Jim Miller's like, "Hey man, awesome fight." And Joe Lozon is like, "Yeah man, you too, thanks." I was like, "Now actually, I did just have a fucking nerdgasm, like yeah. an MMA." nerdgasm about how awesome that was because yeah because that's was, why that's you see that and you're like oh that's why this is the greatest sport in the world yeah because you're bleeding on each other and talking about how awesome this is yeah and that was i wrote about this uh in my reflections piece on an mma junkie the you know every once in a while where i'm watching this and thinking about man how do you explain this sport to someone who has never seen it or doesn't get the appeal of it and there's that moment when Eve Levine calls a pause to have the doctor look at Joe Lozon's cut. And it's a bad cut over his eye, like, like over above his right eyebrow. And the doctor kind of wipes away the blood and you can just see how deep it is and how there's just more blood rushing out to follow the blood that's already on the mat. Uh, and the doctor looks in there and says, no, that's okay. We can go on. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's like, what are you doing? You're just like, I don't see any skull. We're fine. Like, that's the point where if, you have ne if you're not initiated in this sport or combat sports in general and you see that, then you think, well, this is just, you know, barbarism dressed up. Because what's the point of having a doctor if he's going to look into a cut that deep and decide to do nothing uh, to stop the guy from continually getting hit in it? Uh, but because of what we already know about MMA, how it's already kind of this weird world where, hey, you're out there trying to hurt each other. Uh, that the doctor just kind of looks at it and says, no, nah, go on. And that turns out to be the right call. That turns out to, to be exactly what we're hoping for. And it ends up being an awesome fight where Joe Lozon, bloody uh, in the third round, is still diving for heel hooks uh, like he's, you know. Yeah, and that was that was incredible, too, that, that sequence at the end when, when he tried to kind of get that rolling heel hook on, on yeah, Jim Yeah, that's some real chonin uh, diving for heel hook shit and almost gets it. Yeah. Uh, well, let me read this question that we got from from listener Kyle Kelly Yoner, who emails the podcast every now and then, because I think, you know, it's a good question. And I feel like it really illuminates the kind of dude that that Joe Lozon is. And here's a question at the at the post fight press conference. Joe Lozon said, if I did a great job in training, I don't really care how the fight ends. Normally, Joe fights Joe's fights end with an extra five figure chunk of change. Should Joe care more about how his fight ends and get more conservative in hopes of stringing a few W's together? Or is his I don't care how the fight ends attitude what gets him his submissions and his bonuses? Or am I just making too much of this soundbite? Now, I think that's kind of an awesome comment from Joe Lozon, not necessarily because of how it, you know, uh, relates to wins and losses. But I think it's kind of an awesome comment in that uh, it, it, it kind of reveals that Joe Lozon is in this for himself. And I feel like even before this fight in his career, he's a guy that's really easy to like. 
You know, he's an exciting yeah. fighter. He's a he's a smart guy, and he seems to have a really good attitude about the whole sport. And when he says something like that, it makes me think, oh, well, this guy is actually in it for the personal journey, for the like individual uh, challenge of it all. And so I think it's kind of awesome for a dude to take the the notion that you know, as long as he feels like he improved. Like he trained really well leading up to the fight. Like he had a good game plan, and 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 like he accomplished everything that he wanted to accomplish. Maybe it's totally fine that that his wins or his losses are are sort of irrelevant to him in the end. You know, I also thought that was kind of a an interesting statement, but I took it as maybe Joe Lozon realizes that Joe Lozon's probably not going to be a lightweight champion in the UFC, right? Yeah. yeah like, yes. Absolutely, and, and that's fine. I think I I don't think that uh, just because you know some of the guys who get so obsessed with well I'm going to fight for the belt and I'm going to as soon as I win a fight that might put me in position I'm going to sit around and wait for it uh, you know I, and I understand you want to be the champion you want to fight the best all that stuff um, you also want to be able to keep getting out there and making some money at it uh, and you know having that that personal journey as you mentioned and and Joe Lozon is doing that so uh, I think. For, for what the role he occupies in, in the UFC lightweight division, I don't think he could be doing it any better. Yeah, and I mean, one of the reasons that I like that comment is that I feel like at this point in Lozon's career, it would be a point where another guy would cop out and say, oh, well, I just want to have exciting fights. You know, I just want big fights, just big, exciting fights. And maybe Lozon said that, and I didn't see it, but just from this quote, I think this is an entirely more reasonable, more awesome, and frankly, more intelligent response to say, you know, I do this for myself, and as fa- as long as I feel like I'm progressing and 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 you know accomplishing all of the goals I set out for myself in training camp, you know winning is great. But at the same time, I'm not going to kill myself because I didn't win. Well, and if you look at the bonuses this guy has nabbed, uh, win or lose, you got to say he's doing something right. And that guy is pocketing a lot of extra money just because of the way he fights. And as you said, I, I don't see how you can not want to see Joe Lozon at this point. Yeah. At the same time, though, let's talk a little bit about Jim Miller because, you know, he's the guy who won the fight. And uh, at the beginning of the of the fight, certainly, and, you know, he, he dominated sort of throughout, but especially right at the beginning of the fight, he comes out and you think to yourself, wow, this looks like a dude who's a contender. And yeah. I don't know if that, you know, is, you know, had anything to do with, like, the, the level of the competition, that he wasn't necessarily fighting a top two or three guy in the division, which... Historically, that's sort of the only guy that Jim Miller loses to. Yeah. But God damn it, he looked good, yeah. especially early on. Yeah, you look at him the way he just charged out there and, and came after Joe Lozon, and you're like, man, is, does Jim Miller have dinner reservations or something? Does he have, does he have somewhere he's got to be? I know uh, Chad's favorite remark about Jim Miller is that uh, you look at him and he looks like uh, a dude who has the, the body of a 1920s carnival catch wrestler. Yeah, he looks like he'd be the guy, after the carnival got over, you could pay a nickel and wrestle him like if you were if you thought you were tough you could wrestle him and like if you if you lasted 10 minutes you'd get a, a saw buck i don't even know what that is like five bucks you, you get a, a quarter you get a dollar i don't know yeah and then you know odds are he would just absolutely smoke you and then yeah, well he'd use a strangle bar is what he would do and it would be over really fast he'd use a strangle bar amble off to his trailer somewhere and uh fire up a doobie fire, fire up a doobie play poker with the guys with a card that's all naked ladies a card deck that's all, all naked ladies on it uh, yeah, you know, and live a pretty, pretty satisfying existence that way. Uh, fortunately, now we have uh, such thing as mixed martial arts, a home for guys like Jim Miller. Uh, and he goes out there, and puts on a great fight, even though he, he seemed to kind of get a little tired there in the third round. And he had Mike Constantino just, uh, just yeah. offering him no goddamn sympathy. Possible psychopath, Mike Constantino. Suck it up, I believe, was the comment in the third round, which was just awesome. Yeah, Mike Constantino does not want to hear about how you're feeling tired after beating the hell out of Joe Lozon and having him bleed all over you. Uh, but yeah, th- that is one of those where, you know, when they're, you mentioned it when they had that pause and they were both kind of like, hey, this is awesome. And then when they finished the fight and you just kind of see that look on both of their faces like, wow, well, that was awesome and I'm glad it's over. You know, that that is the kind of stuff that reminds you a, this sport is kind of insane to begin with, uh, but yes. is totally unique from other sports in that way. Uh, it's 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 crazy and gets to some kind of uh, some deeper root level than some shit like basketball does, uh, where two guys covered in one another's blood are laying there, uh, you know, and it's just kind of like ecstatic kinship that they're feeling right there. 
Yeah, it does not use a ball as a filter, no. you might say. Uh, totally off topic, but since you just talked about Mike Constantino in Jim Miller's corner, it reminded me that pretty much from start to finish in this UFC, if you were a guy who enjoyed awesome corner antics, yes. this was a stellar event from top to bottom because you had Ray Longo coming out with Costa Filippo. You had yeah. Matt Hume being there with uh, Tim Boach. That was an awesome moment. Telling too, him he didn't want to hear about his fucking broken hand yeah. pretty much. Or in the when, uh, when Tim Boach mentions how he can't see out of the eye poked eye in order to close the distance. And Matt Hume asks very calmly, do you want to quit? Uh, <laughs> Tim Boach says, fuck no. He's like, well, then I don't want to hear about it. You know, it's such a great exchange right there like you know he didn't even miss a beat on that one you had uh greg jackson doing his greg jackson thing which is awesome no one infantilizes a fighter like greg jackson does in the corner in between rounds i really would though when uh, when junior dos santos had a bunch of brazilian guys yelling at him in portuguese and it's just a chaotic environment in between rounds you're like man it seems like this is one instance where the guy might benefit from a greg jackson in there to tell him to calm down and breathe and do his breathing simulation and and maybe just bring it down a little bit so you can recover rather than just having a bunch of dudes freaking out and yelling in your face. I don't know if that really helps you between rounds. Well, I mean, let's be honest. We would all be better off if we had Greg Jackson around. <laughs> I feel like I'd get out of bed in the morning and it would be awesome if I walked out into the living room and Greg Jackson was sitting on the couch being like, all right, Chad Dennis, doing a great job. Now, what I want to see from you when you go in the kitchen is to get yourself a bowl of grape nuts. We're going to get the milk out, take it, <laughs> pour it in the bowl. Yeah, but then uh, you brought up the awesome point, too, when you see uh, Yushin Okami with Matt Limland in his corner. What do those two guys talk about? How, well, how did that crew get together, right? Like, Yushin Okami, Matt Linland, and then Yushin Okami's two Japanese cornermen. Like, how are they rolling together? Yeah, well, in, in between rounds, you can hear uh, the Japanese cornerman giving him all this advice in Japanese. And then as, he gets, as Okami gets up and gets ready to go back into the fight, Linland just kind of like, you know, Smacks him on the shoulder and is like, all right, let's get after it. (laughs) Great. Thanks, man. You know, it would be awesome to be a fly on the wall for some of those conversations, though. Yeah. I always wanted to be around when Yushinokami was living at Chael Sonnen's house. Yeah. Boy, they must have just. Well, you know. Do you think they lived in stony silence or like would would Chael just like have Fox News on and would be talking about goddamn Democrats? Chael Sonnen would have Fox News on, definitely. uh, And Yushinokami would probably be very polite about it. Uh, but talking to Chael and his family members about they, you know, he'd bring Yushin to family functions and, you know, social functions and stuff. And they all really liked Yushin, uh, who did his best uh, to, to put up with the antics of his hosts and not offend them from the sound of things. Well, clearly we've exhausted this topic. Uh, let's do Are You Fucking Kidding Me? And then we'll uh, we'll roll into round number three. All right. My Are You Fucking Kidding Me? goes out yet again to the judges. The judges in Nevada. I wish we had a tally of how many times you would. I know. Are you fucking kidding me? Did the judges. And this is a weird one because I don't even feel like as far as fight outcomes at UFC 155, they really fucked up too much. I mean, the Leonard Garcia one, I thought Garcia should have taken that decision over Max Holloway. But whatever is close, you know, I can I can see that one going either way. So I'm not going to get too mad about that one. But when you give Melvin Guillard a 30-27, you know, one judge, I believe that was Adelaide Bird, gave him a 30-27 uh, in a fight he clearly lost, much less definitely did not you know run the table. Uh, then uh, Brad Pickett gets at least one judge to see things 29-28 for him in a fight where he basically just got his head punched off by Eddie Wineland as he followed him around the cage. Uh, and then even in the main event where one judge scored it 50-45 for Cain Velasquez, meaning did not score that first round a 10-8 for Cain Velasquez. He almost killed him in that first round. If that's not a 10-8, then what the hell is? Judges, are you fucking kidding me with this bullshit? Are you fucking kidding me with this bullshit, judges? I've had it. Anyway, uh, my are you fucking kidding me this week goes out to Derek Brunson. I know it's your first win in the UFC. I know you took it on short notice. I know that you beat Chris Lieben, who's an established star. But dude, seriously... Act like you've been there before. <laughs> yeah. I know that John Anik actually made reference to that expression during the broadcast and never was it more appropriate when you go out there and outpoint a guy with your wrestling and just kind of uh, outlast him and win a lopsided but fairly nonviolent decision. <laughs> like, don't scream like you just ripped the heart out of a polar bear. Like, just <laughs> nod your head and slap five with your corner man. 
shake hands with Chris Lieben, give him a hug, tell him it was an honor to fight him, and get out of there. Yeah. Chris Lieben was trying to shake hands with him, and yeah. Derek Brunson's yelling like he won the Super Bowl. Are you fucking kidding me? Are you fucking kidding me, Derek Brunson? Anyway, that's it for round number two. We'll be right back with round number three. Round three. Ben, during the pre-fight media scrum for UFC 155, Yahoo's uh, Kevin Ioli succeeded in engaging Dana White in what I think was the UFC president's most substantive commentary on performance-enhancing drugs in the sport, at least for a while. Yeah. Uh, And some of the things that he said, I felt, were really, really strange. Um, Among them... I just want to read this quote from Kevin Ioli's story. Uh, This is Dana White talking. He says, everybody thinks if you did this random testing, you'd catch so many guys on PEDs. No, you'd catch more of the guys on marijuana. That's where you'd really bust a lot of guys. We have 475 guys under contract and probably 400 of them would be out with marijuana. Now, obviously, I think he's exaggerating and I think he's exaggerating to make a point. And you, favorite Dana White tactic. Yeah. You and I talked about this a little bit on, on, on Instant Messenger this week. Our preferred means of communication. And I know it seemed like maybe you disagreed with me a little bit, but I'm just going to say this now and get your reaction to it. I feel like this quote is as close as we've ever seen to a CEO or commissioner of a, of a fairly major sport essentially admitting we don't want to test guys because we're afraid how many guys would test positive for something. I think that might be a little bit of a red herring here that where he's saying, hey, this would be our real problem is marijuana. Um, because I think we all are pretty much in agreement that we really shouldn't even be testing for marijuana. Right, which is another thing we can talk about because I think most of Dana White's comments here kind of miss the point of yeah. what we should be talking about. I but... think they intentionally miss the point. I think well, he's yeah, trying obviously. to get us off the, the thing that, hey, no, the reason this wouldn't... You are right that it is weird for him to be like, this is the first time we've we've seen him drift into the territory of you're right i don't want my guys tested year-round um but i don't want them tested because i feel like basically they'll be punished for um you know a a technical violation that doesn't really mean anything rather than an actual meaningful violation it used to be that when you'd press dana white on this stuff it would be hey the government's supposed to do this we're regulated by the government chad yeah Uh, you know uh, you know that's one of my favorites of his talking points. i know that ufc talking points about Drug testing for a long time has been to just yell stuff about the government, which is hilarious when you consider that the UFC is bigger, better funded, more competent, and more powerful than the biggest state athletic commission in the nation, Nevada. And that only concerns fight cards when you have them in Las Vegas. When you go on the road and you are having fight cards in places like Texas or Minnesota, or Washington State, or Pennsylvania. Now you're dealing with an even smaller, less funded, less competent, you know, less powerful athletic commission. So for the UFC to constantly talk about how they're quote-unquote regulated by the government, you would think that the fucking FBI was coming in (laughs) and just like showing up at Junior Dos Santos' house and like rifling through his things. (laughs) Why they do that? That's what Junior (laughs) Dos Santos would say when the FBI comes in, goes through his things. Why they do that? But, uh, you know, we've seen that when the UFC does feel like the government is doing something unfair, such as in the state of New York, they have no problem going after that. It's not that they are just as soon as the government ha- says this is how we want it, the UFC throws up its hands and say that's how it's got to be. Uh, they also, we've heard different uh, approaches where Dana White will say, um, well, hey, look at all this stuff we've got going on. We've got 300 athletes under contract, and you want me to go around and drug test them all? Um, of course, no. No one is suggesting that Dana White hold the, the cup and watch the guys pee into it individually. Uh, you would hire somebody to do all that kind of stuff. Um, and then it's like, okay, what? We're supposed to spend all this money doing a thing that the state athletic, athletic commissions are supposed to be responsible for? I mean, there are all these points that he keeps bringing up, but this is the first time we've heard him say, no, we don't want to do it because some guys might get caught, but get caught for something that doesn't really matter. I think that's a way out of being like, hey, you guys think that PEDs are the issue, um, but they're not. It's really this other thing to get us to talk about that. I think PEDs are the issue. I think you would still catch a lot of guys on PEDs if you were doing that kind of random you know, training camp, no-notice testing. 
you would catch, I mean, you'd catch probably more guys on marijuana. That's true. Especially if you're a pro fighter, marijuana is the perfect drug for you because, you know, it does not, it's not like you're going to be hungover in the morning after you smoke some marijuana. Uh, it's not like it's going to really inhibit your training too much. A lot of jujitsu guys like to smoke weed uh, before they go and roll. I mean, trust me, I can't tell you how many dudes I've rolled with whose geese just permanently smell of marijuana. I know that's your excuse. I know that's what you tell your mom when she finds the weed in yeah. the pocket of your of your gi. <laughs> the pocket of my gi. Yeah, that's it right. has an inside weed pocket, doesn't it? A little stash pocket. Yeah, I sewed that in there myself. Uh, you know, I can think of a lot of reasons why weed is. If you're a pro fighter, you come home, you've been training twice a day, you want to relax a little bit and watch the Daily Show. You know, yeah, weed is is a good thing for you to have, and it's not going to enhance your performance or harm your performance. So we shouldn't be testing for guys. At the same time, let's not pretend like there aren't a lot of guys abusing PEDs, both like out in the open with the testosterone exemptions and privately uh, that they only get caught when, you know, Keith Kaiser shows up and says, hey, Alistair, you have to give us a sample now. Yeah. I'm just saying. Well, here's the thing that, that always bothers me whenever the UFC starts talking about this drug testing. You know, Dana White said during this scrum that he hates PEDs and wants to eradicate them from the sport, which I feel like, you know, in years past, you could have possibly made the argument that if you were a big time mixed martial arts promoter, you would not want to know how many guys were on PEDs. Like yeah. the best the best course of action would have been to sort of be ignorant of it on purpose. Now, I think we've come around to the point in this history of the sport where it would really be in the UFC's best interests to test all of their guys themselves for a number of different reasons. Firstly, because I think that the potential for an enormous scandal to erupt would have such an adverse effect on the UFC's bottom line that they would be really wise to do everything that they could to avoid it. Yeah, or to at least have something to point to to say, hey, we were doing all we could uh, if and when that scandal does erupt. Secondly, I think if you're doing your own drug testing independent to and in addition to the state athletic commission testing, it really allows you as the UFC to control the story and control the situation, which they could perfectly well do because the UFC is a privately traded company and they don't really have any responsibility or like there's nothing forcing them to release any sort of information at all about their uh, employees to the media. And we see this all the time. They do it with fighter salaries. We don't really know how much these guys are getting paid. So when Dana White kind of goes off about guys testing positive for marijuana and how that would mean they would have to serve the same suspension that guys who test positive for PEDs serve, I think he's kind of purposefully or, or unconsciously missing the point in that if the UFC tested their own guys, they could totally control the situation and they wouldn't have to suspend guys for testing positive for marijuana. Hell, they wouldn't even have to test guys for marijuana, period. Right. Just test guys for performance enhancers, write it into every UFC contract that says, hey, at some point this year, maybe three times this year, you're going to get tested and we're not going to tell you when it's going to be. And I think that that alone, especially if you build in some kind of additional punishment, like we've said in the past on this podcast, hey, you test positive, you're going to forfeit your entire purse. Uh, I think then and only then would you have the chance of trying to see some actual real change in terms of getting rid of performance enhancers in the sport. Well, you also have the ability, like I think uh, Kevin Ioli made the point in the scrum interview and uh, probably in his story that under like the WADA code, uh, they don't punish people for out-of-competition marijuana tests. I mean, you can't really control what the athletic commission is going to test for and, and what they're going to do, but if you do find a guy who, you know, he's three months out from his next fight and he's test positive for marijuana, you know, that wouldn't necessarily be a violation uh, of, like, some of the, the marijuana codes. So there's some... There's some uh, some basis for, for doing that kind of stuff. And also it would just allow you to not be surprised as often. Yeah. Uh, and he like talks about that. He talks Stephen about that Bonner, in this right, scrum yeah. with Stefan Bonner, where he says, and it, it, it he cleared things up a little bit because there was, you know, it was a little bit weird. The first time he said, Oh man, I wish Stefan Bonner would have told me that he was on uh, testosterone or whatever uh, steroids leading up to the Anderson Silva fight. It's really clear from this media scrum. When he said that, what he means is, when he calls up to offer Stefan Bonner the fight, he wishes Stefan Bonner just would have said, can't do it, I'm on steroids <laughs> right now. Can't do it, steroids. Can't yeah. do it, I'm on steroids right now. And then Dana would have found somebody else to take the fight. 
which if you're the UFC, that's exactly what you want. And that's kind of why you want to do your own drug testing, because if a dude tests positive for steroids out of competition, you don't necessarily have to release it to the media. You could just be like, dude, get the fuck up off steroids so we can book you in a fight. Yeah. What are you thinking? You know, and that that whole, though, the Dana White's uh, whole rant about uh, performance enhancers, and he'll always come back, and this is a point he made over and over again in that scrum, was, well, hey, look at these other sports. What, you think they're clean? You think that, uh, you know, Major League Baseball is really catching all the guys, or that the NFL has a... It's like, because he's... You know, kind of letting the perfect be the enemy of the good. Because some of these other sports might have guys who are getting away with it. Uh, their testing programs are largely still better than, you know, what we have in MMA, which is no real testing program from the UFC and, you know, minimal testing from state athletic commissions, which, as you pointed out, are poorly funded. Just because other testing programs aren't perfect doesn't mean that they aren't better. Yeah. And when he's like, do you really think that Major League Baseball is testing his stars? just reveals that he's not paying attention because as Kevin rightly brought up in the media scrum, Ryan Braun, the NL MVP from last year or two years ago, in fact, did test positive for elevated levels of testosterone and was only not suspended for 50 games because some sort of malfeasance with the chain of evidence. And the guy who was probably going to win, or did he, Melky Cabrera, I think he won, did he win the MVP? No, he took, he voluntarily pulled himself out of the running, but he was sort of going to be the shoe in to win NL MVP again this year playing for the San Francisco Giants, he also tested positive for elevated testosterone. So to make the point that these other sports like baseball are not testing their stars is just malarkey. It is malarkey, frankly. And, you know, I think we're going to see a very – there's a good possibility that we're going to see a a real-world application for this this year because I really think that there is a high possibility that by the end of the year – Alistair Overeem is your UFC heavyweight champion, and he may, in fact, end up fighting a guy like Daniel Cormier headed into, like, next year's New Year's Eve show. So if Overeem beats Cain Velasquez for the heavyweight title middle of next year, I think we're all going to have to take a long look in the mirror and ask ourselves what we're doing in this sport with drug testing and how we really feel about it. Yeah, because that's the same point I was trying to make earlier with a guy like Alistair Overeem that... People already were pretty sure you were using. Then you got caught. There's no way you're still walking around looking the same. There's no way everybody's going to be like, oh, well, Alistair Overeem learned his lesson. I'm sure of it. You know, people are going to assume that you're still using and you're just better about not getting caught. So you have to do something about that just because otherwise, how can the fans ever feel comfortable watching this stuff? Yeah. And if you're the UFC and Alistair Overeem is your heavyweight champion, it behooves you in every possible way to make sure that he's not on steroids. Yeah. And to make sure that you're doing a lot to, to ensure that people can know that and feel comfortable in that knowledge. Not just that he won't get caught for steroids, but just that people can look at him and be like, that is the heavyweight champ and it's, it's legit. It's not, you know, as Junior Dos Santos likes to say about him, created in a lab. Why they do that? Why they do that, Chad? Anyway, let's do Just Saying Stuff, and then we'll get out of here for today. The Just Saying Stuff is the part of the show where week in and week out, Ben and I both make a statement that we are then not asked to follow up or back up or support with facts because at the end of the day, we are just two guys saying stuff. Just saying. Chad, you want to go first? Yeah, I can go first. My, and, you know, here's the thing. I know you're going to mock me because we like to do this on the podcast where you talk about how Tim Boach is my guy. It's your guy, the I, barbarian horde. Honestly, I don't even know how that started. I don't think <laughs> I don't Tim Boach either. was my guy before you started saying that he was. But you know what? Now he totally is. So <laughs> that's, that's, uh, that's just the way it rolls. Um, but the truth is we could be talking about any two guys. And I'm just saying that when Costa Filippu emerges from a fight with a victory – where he cuts his opponent open with a headbutt and then essentially turns the tide of the fight with an eye poke. And our reaction to it on Twitter, in the Twitterverse, is for everybody to talk about what a big win it is for Costa Filippu. That's bullshit, dude. We got to figure some <laughs> shit out in this sport so that guys are not getting wins through cheating. I mean, it's not, he didn't do it on purpose. It's not Costa Filippu's fault really that he emerged with this win. But like if ever there was a time for a no contest, it's when a dude gets poked in the eye and a fight that was uh, going his way immediately falls to pieces on him. Yeah. Yeah. Just saying, just saying, and no, you have a good point there. And you know, uh, 
my friend uh, Dan DeStefano, who I do jujitsu with and who is a big kickboxer, uh, gets just livid every time some guy gets a, an accidental eye poke, especially you know trying to push away, trying to push somebody's face away, or is kind of throwing his hand out there because as he makes the point, there's no reason for you to have your fingers out there like that. You know, and we saw several examples in this UFC of guys grabbing the fence, grabbing somebody's shorts, where the referee would just say over and over again, stop grabbing the shorts, stop grabbing the shorts. I would really prefer it if you would let go of his shorts now. You know, you can kind of just break the rules and the referee will just keep reminding you over and over again that you're breaking the rules. And you'll be like, yeah, I'll know. I know. I'll stop. I'll stop soon here. Just, okay, yeah, now I'm done. Um, my just saying stuff is... As we discussed earlier, uh, John Anik was in the play-by-play seat with Joe Rogan for this broadcast. Mike Goldberg mysteriously disappeared. Uh, first, there was some report that he was sick or something. Then Dana White said he's taking some time off. Nobody knows when he'll be back. Uh, in, in the meantime, we had John Anik and Goldberg. I'm just saying, I wouldn't be too sad if Goldberg never came back. Whoa, ouch. Oh, snap. I'm just saying, I think Anik and Rogan could be a, a pretty awesome broadcast team. I wouldn't mind seeing that. You know, I don't wish Mike Goldberg ill. If he if he if he is sick, I hope he gets better. Uh, if he is just taking some time off to play golf or whatever, I hope he, he comes back refreshed and relaxed. But you know, if he goes on and, and moves on to some other job and if it's a contract dispute or whatever, and he never comes back to the UFC, I'm just saying, I'm not crying to sleep at night over it. Wow, just saying. Just saying. Anyway, that's the show for this week. Uh, we'll be back next week to further our discussion on the politics, ongoing happenings, and stuff of mixed stuff. martial arts. As for now, we're done. We're through. We're out. You think that's going to make Mike Goldberg sad? I don't know, man. That's like, well, what if you find out he has cancer? And then you're going to be like, wow, you asshole. You just talked about it. And he's going to be sitting around listening to this podcast, hooked up the chemo, doing it.